John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Uh, This takes place after Jesus rose from the dead, the third day after he died, and the first day of the week on that Sunday, where he rose in the morning and uh, appeared to Mary Magdalene, and then to the gathered disciples in the evening, even though the doors were locked, he greeted them with peace, remember from last week, and he sent them, he commissioned them, even as he had been sent by his father, and he also breathed on them. What was the significance of breathing? What were they receiving? The Holy Spirit. That's right. Well, someone was not there. One of the disciples was missing. And we're going to learn more about him in this passage. So let's begin with verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Dear God, we give give thanks to you for making yourself known to us in grace, that you call us to yourself through your word. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would work faith in us, that we might indeed believe and receive Christ and continue to receive and lean upon Christ as our Savior, as our King, as our God. And we pray that you would use your word to this end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So which of the disciples were missing? Thomas. Thomas was missing. Now, in this passage, we first of all, of course, learn about Thomas and his confession of the truth, eventually, his initial reluctance to believe, and then his belief in the resurrection, and not just the resurrection, but what the resurrection meant, uh, calling Jesus my Lord and my God. And then this transitions to John's purpose statement for the whole book. As he's approaching his conclusion, he's telling you and me why he wrote this gospel, this book. He wrote it. He wrote these signs. He described Jesus and his ministry. Not everything, but some of it. 
so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name, that through faith in Jesus Christ comes eternal life. And John wanted you to have eternal life. And so he wanted to convince you to believe in Jesus Christ and to strengthen you in that faith. Uh, This is the good news of Jesus Christ and uh, ought to meet a response of faith from us that we receive Jesus Christ. Because all who received him, as, as the beginning of the gospel told us, God has given a right to them that they might be called children of God. And if children, then than heirs of him, uh, those who receive eternal life. So verse 31 is the main point of this sermon and of the whole gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and through believing in him, we may have eternal life. But first, let's look at Thomas's reluctance to believe. Thomas, at first, did not believe that Jesus was risen from the dead even though ten disciples at least, probably others who were with them, like Mary Magdalene, could testify as well, even though they all told him, Jesus has risen from the dead. We saw him. He was standing right here. But Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he was able to see Jesus and put his finger through the marks on his hands and his side. But for that, he would not believe. He had to see and touch Perhaps he was slow to believe because he was so depressed and sorrowful. We don't know exactly what was causing this reluctance to believe. Was he like the Eeyore of the bunch? Oh, it couldn't be true. It's too good to be true. Was he skeptical? Uh, In any case, uh, he did not yet believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. He was far from being inclined to believe this easily. Now, this was his own fault. He should have believed with the others. After all, you had more than two or three eyewitnesses here. You had ten people that you knew really well. But his reluctance serves your good. It's recorded for your instruction, your encouragement to bolster your faith that what John is writing here is true. The people that proclaimed that Jesus was risen from the dead weren't people who were just already wishing for it and wishing for it so strongly that they started dreaming it up. No, these are people that didn't expect it to begin with. And especially someone like Thomas, even in the face of all these witnesses, he did not yet believe. And yet by the end, he did confess it. And he would stake his life on it as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so that should encourage you that what the apostles have testified to is reliable. Even a a disciple as Thomas confessed the truth of the resurrection. All of the disciples have been cast down and discouraged with Christ's death. They were not expecting the resurrection. They weren't biased towards it. They became convinced despite their natural inclinations. And this was all the more true of Thomas. And yet they all did come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Particular point in time, the body that was buried came back out, back to life. So they didn't make it up. They didn't steal the body. What would have been the point? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then 
what would be the point of continuing to preach him? He would have faded away like so many other messianic pretenders in the early century of this era. If Jesus was not risen, then all their hopes were dashed. They did not imagine it or hallucinate it or merely think that Jesus was alive in their hearts and that was good enough for them. They believed in a historical, physical resurrection, a body that would even bear the marks of the crucifixion. And they had not been expecting it. Thomas, in particular, required to see and touch before he would believe. He knew that Jesus had been pierced in his feet and hands, and he even knew what John had saw, that Jesus had been pierced in the side, where the water and blood flowed out, that Jesus indeed was truly dead. Like I said, Thomas was not right to be so skeptical. He should have understood how Christ had predicted this beforehand. He had spoken of his own body, saying that he would tear down the temple and in three days he would build it up again. He should have listened to the unanimous witness of his fellow disciples. Uh, But his stubborn doubt makes all his later witness all the more credible. Another point we can learn from Thomas's reluctance, or actually from Thomas's absence initially, this is a point from J.C. Ryle, uh, is that we can learn from Thomas's absence in the first appearance. We don't know why uh, Thomas wasn't there on that eve of Christ's resurrection. Was he going to get food? Was he uh, out on business? Did he, was he so depressed he just didn't even gather with the rest of the disciples? We don't know exactly why he was missing, but we do know that he missed out. For some reason, he had not been there, and as a consequence, he remained for an extra week in doubt and sorrow. Who knows what you will miss by being absent from the worship of Christ's disciples? What you might miss by not being among the gathered disciples on the Lord's day. This is for our good. Do not forsake the gathering on the Lord's day. It's an appointed means for your good as well as for God's glory. <clears throat> Secondly, let's look at Thomas's confession, a belief, because Thomas did not remain in doubt. Jesus came to them again. <clears throat> when did he come? Do you remember where the, when he came and showed himself to them the second time? How many days later? Eight days later. Now, John and a lot of the people of his age counted days a little differently than we do. If I was, today's Sunday, if I was going to talk about Tuesday, I'd probably say that's two days from now, right? Because you count Monday, Tuesday. But he would have counted it as three days because he would say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right? Counting the day that hasn't finished yet. Um, and, and so that's how, for example, they, you could say Jesus was dead three days as well as Jesus rose on the third day. That's how they would count days. Well, so eight days later would include that first Sunday and would end on that next Sunday. This is the Sunday following Christ's resurrection, the next week. And I think that's important. Jesus was setting a pattern for his disciples. He came among the gathered disciples on the day of his Resurrection, the one-week anniversary. It was a blessed day and a holy day, a day for holy convocation, 
an assembly in which he would be present initially by his physical presence, but after he ascended by the Holy Spirit, who would also descend upon the gathered disciples on the first day of the week. And so this is, what do you call that sort of day? We call it the Sabbath day, uh, the Christian Sabbath, now observed in honor of Christ's resurrection. But this time, Thomas was among them. Thomas was among the disciples. Notice his disciples, the other disciples were, were not, had not kicked Thomas out. They were patient with Thomas. Thomas had not completely forsaken. He was still with the other disciples. And Jesus, when he came, was very gracious to Thomas and indeed showed himself to him. He did not appear to Thomas privately, but he did come to Thomas in the midst of the gathered disciples. He blessed Thomas on that Lord's Day with his people. Might be a good reminder again for us uh, to, to seek growth in Christ on the same occasion. Now notice what Jesus said and did. He said, peace be with you again. Again, he greets them this way. He leaves them his peace. He reassures them of his peace. They had already heard this before. But he assures them once again, even as we're reassured from week to week, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) And then he addressed Thomas. He knew what Thomas had been talking about. He knew what Thomas had said, even though he had not been physically present there. Jesus showed Thomas his hands and his side and exhorted Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas saw the risen Lord. He saw the same body that had lain in the grave, now raised to immortality, uh, to new life, standing there before him. It was not a ghost, was not a mere spirit. It was the self-same body. And so what did Thomas do? He confessed, my Lord and my God. He's calling Jesus, my Lord and my God. Compare this with John 1. How did the gospel begin? The Word, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, John knew that from the beginning. He told his readers that from the beginning. But the apostles didn't know that from the beginning. But as they were with Jesus, as they learned Jesus, and then especially all the more at the resurrection, they discovered this same truth. They came to that same conclusion by the end of it, that Jesus is the Lord, that he is God. Notice that Thomas saw the body of Christ and he confessed the deity of Christ. Does that seem a little odd? Because he has a body, therefore he's God. What's missing in there? There's a few steps that, you know, are in there that are not articulated. For Jesus to have to be living in the flesh, meant that he had risen from the dead. And for him to have risen from the dead, not for someone else to call him from the dead, but for him to be risen from the dead, meant that he was who he said he was, that he had overcome the power of sin and death, that he was indeed the Christ, that all that he had said about being the Son and one with the Father, making himself equal with God, all of that was true. And therefore, Thomas confesses, seeing the risen Lord, 
my Lord and my God. So Christ was vindicated, declared to be God and Lord. But notice also Thomas doesn't just say Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was also receiving Christ. That's one way to describe faith. Faith means that you do agree that something is true and also that you receive and rest upon it. That you receive Christ as my Lord, my God, the one who I trust in, who will deliver me. I am his and he is mine. This is the way that faith speaks. My Lord, my God, claiming him on, for his own, claiming his death on his behalf. This is what you should do, that you should claim Christ as your own, to take that gift and take it by the hand of faith, that you might benefit from it, that Jesus might save you. Thomas's confession is a model for us. In fact, Jesus then speaks of others who would believe in the same way, yet without seeing Jesus in the flesh. Jesus replied to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Remember, John himself, the writer of the gospel, believed before he saw Jesus. He simply saw the empty tomb and he believed. But you and I are in a similar situation. We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh yet. We will see him one day. But... You and I have not seen the marks in the hands or his side. But Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. We are called to believe the same thing that Thomas believed, to make the same confession, that Jesus Christ is risen, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he is my Lord and my God. We are called to believe in Jesus to receive the testimony of the apostolic eyewitnesses and to receive Jesus in this way. We read of those who did see Jesus, who touched him, who saw this with their own eyes. This is how John begins his epistle. Same writer in John 1. This is how he begins his letter. That which was from the beginning... That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So John wanted these others to be partakers with him of eternal life, to believe in the same one that John (coughs) and the other apostles had seen and touched and could verify that he indeed was risen. Listen to those who saw and touched and were commissioned with this message from Jesus. Listen to them. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And that leads us to John's purpose statement for the book. And this is our third point. The point of the book that you might believe. (coughs) John wrote this gospel to record signs that Jesus did. 
culminating with the resurrection, so that those who did not see it might be convinced to believe in Jesus and obtain eternal life. There are other signs that Jesus did before the disciples. The other Gospels have recorded some of them. We don't know that, you know, we, there's probably others that aren't recorded in, in any of the Gospels, but uh, John didn't even record as much as Matthew or Mark. Uh, but John wrote what he did purposefully and intentionally uh, for this purpose to convince those to, to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus was, or sorry, John was selective. He recorded this slice of Jesus' ministry to convince his readers. He testified to what he saw and heard. And he did so infallibly through the inspiration of the Spirit, who would uh, recall to his mind all the things that Jesus had taught. Do you remember the signs that we've looked at in the Gospel of John? Do you remember what the first sign was when Jesus began to reveal his glory? Do you remember the first miracle described in the Gospel of John? He changed something into something? What did Jesus do? Water into wine at the the wedding feast at Cana. And then he did something in the temple. He cleansed the temple and prophesied of his resurrection. That's the second sign and symbol. Thirdly, he healed the official's son. And he uh, healed the official's son by his word. And the official believed in Jesus that he would heal his son before he saw his son. Again, a similar theme to believing without seeing, simply trusting in Jesus. Jesus also healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. He said, rise and pick up your mats and walk. Jesus also fed the 5,000, well, more than 5,000 even, with five loaves and two fish. That was another vast, great miracle that demonstrated his power and his grace as he expanded upon it and explained it in his discourse on the bread of life. He healed the man born blind by putting mud on his eyes and directing him to wash. And he raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead four days. And then he himself rose from the dead. That is the great and final sign. So John says these signs they've just described are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is what we should present to unbelievers. This is what you should do. Have life by believing in his name to speak of Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? Come and see. Even as we saw at the beginning chapter, come and see. Investigate Jesus. Learn from him. Learn to see in him God come in the flesh. And this is also for the encouragement of believers. Uh, In fact, John will write his epistle to those who do believe in Jesus, to know that you do have eternal life in his name. We can even learn that and have encouraged in that by this gospel, uh, to be all the more firm in our faith and to rejoice that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
We've seen multiple comments like that throughout this gospel, that all those who believe in Jesus Christ have eternal life. They've passed out of death into life. They're not condemned anymore. That whoever comes to him shall never hunger, and those who believe in him shall never thirst. So in conclusion, uh, we find in this gospel, Jesus Christ held forth to sinners that those who believe in him might be released from that curse which is due for us for sin of death, uh, physical death, eternal death, and hell. And that Jesus is the eternal word, the only begotten Son of God who became flesh for sinners' sake. He is God with all the attributes of God, one with the Father. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who died on the cross for our sins. He is the source of the water of life. He is the bread of life. He is the light of life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. One cannot have God but through Jesus Christ and faith in him. So receive him and rest on him. For those who do this are not under condemnation, but have passed from death into eternal life. To him be glory and honor in heaven and on earth, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we give thanks to you for sending your only begotten Son, that we might live in him. We pray that you would uh, indeed uh, give us the the fruit of the Spirit, that we might even taste glory uh, in this life of peace and joy and communion with you. We pray that you would um, also bring the lost to salvation to encourage us that we might be steadfast in this faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.